Spectrums next. Welcome to Spectrum, the science and technology show on KALX Berkeley, a bi-weekly 30-minute program bringing you interviews featuring Bay Area scientists and technologists, as well as a calendar of local events and news. Good afternoon. I'm Rick Karneski. Brad Swift and I are the hosts of today's show. We're speaking with Jessica and Bradley Wojtek. Jessica is a designer and a developer who earned her Master's of Information Management and Systems here at Cal, and has worked on several UC Berkeley websites. She's also working on the future of science education through projects like NED the Neuron. Brad is an NIH and NIGMS postdoctoral fellow at UCSF. He got his PhD from Cal. He's a prolific blogger and zombie expert. The Voitex are here to talk about Brain Systems Connections and Associations and Network Relationships, or Brain Scanner. This website helps people explore how neuroscience terms relate to one another in the peer-reviewed literature. They've documented their project in a recent journal of neuroscience methods paper. Brad and Jessica, welcome to Spectrum. Thank you for having us. Thanks. Can you tell us a little bit about Brain Scanner? Actually, I was at a conference here at Cal held by the CSSA, so the Cognitive Science Student Association, an undergraduate association here at Cal. Uh, They had several neuroscientists and cognitive scientists come and give presentations, and I was one of those people. I was on a panel with a Stanford cognitive scientist. At the end of the day, it was a Q&A. We got into a question about what can be known in the neurosciences, and I had mentioned that the peer-reviewed neuroscientific literature probably is smarter than we are. There's something like 3 million peer-reviewed neuroscientific publications. And I was saying that that is just too many. There is no way for anybody to, to integrate all of those facts. And I said, if there's some automated or algorithmic way of doing that, we could probably find some neat stuff out. And he, he disagreed with me pretty strongly on the panel. And I sort of stewed on that for a while. And that ended up becoming the brain scanner project, actually, which is using text mining to look at how different topics in the neurosciences relate to one another. We had a conversation about this, and I had just started... Uh, about six months before my uh, master's program at the School of Information. So all of the stuff that he was saying really jived with what I was learning. So we got together after that. I don't we we talked about it off and on, uh, uh-huh. sort of over dinner and stuff occasionally. Um, yeah. But I think it was right around, well, right right before we found out you were pregnant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right Right around Christmas when we first actually sat down together to work on it. And that was just a random evening. Yeah, we didn't have, well, we didn't have a baby at the time, so we didn't have much else to do. Brad was working on this thing. He said, you know, I've been working on this all day. I'm trying to get this algorithm to work and see if we can get any results out of this. And I, I kind of challenged him. I said, I can do that faster than you can. <laughs> so I just started taking my course. I had all of these new skills that I just wanted to kind of show off. And I did. She, yeah, she beat me. <laughs> You guys were both sort of... We, we, we were basically uh, co-coding. Yeah. So we were sitting on the couch at home and pair programming. <laughs> Not really, because we weren't actually doing it together. We were using two different... Competitive We were competing. Programming. It was competitive <laughs> programming. Exactly. So who do you see as the audience for Brain Scanner? Well, I, I, I know the answer to that somewhat, right? So 
I have colleagues who tell me, and, and a lot of grad students actually mostly, uh, who say that they use it as a stop for searching the peer-reviewed neuroscientific literature. So PubMed, which is the service run by the National Library of Medicine, which is part of the National Institutes for Health, indexes a lot of these peer-reviewed biomedical journals. Their search engine is quite good, but it returns just textual information. You know, you just you see the 20 most recently published papers or, you know, however you want to sort it uh, related to the search term of interest. Yeah, so basically anybody who wants to create an app can get access to this data. You have to follow certain rules, but otherwise you can get the information out of this database easily in, in, a, in a sort of standard format. We provide a graphic or visualization layer on top of the search. So you can put in one of these search terms and you can see here are the topics that relate to it very strongly in the literature, statistically speaking. You know, uh, By that I mean here are the words or terms that show up a lot in papers with the term memory, for example. We also then list the papers that are related, and you can see the full list of terms and how it relates to different topics and things like that. Um, if I want to look at uh, brain region and say, okay, what are the other brain regions that are related to this? You can really quickly visually see that based upon these three million publications that we, we searched through. You are listening to Spectrum on KALX Berkeley. We're talking with user interface developer Jessica Wojtek and neuroscientist Bradley Wojtek about BrainScanner. Do you see other potentially valuable ways you could harness PubMed's data or other reference sources? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the aspects actually of the paper that we published was, was to address that that very question. Uh, initially, we tried to publish the paper just as a, here's a, here's a resource. One of the uh, editors for a journal that rejected the paper said, you know, what, what can you do with this? And uh, of course, you know, this is something we've been thinking about. And so I, I tried to build a proof of concept. So one of, the, one of the things that we showed, statistically speaking, that you can do with this, this the data, we call hypothesis generation or semi-automated hypothesis generation. And this works off of a very simple idea. Um, it's almost like recommender algorithms in um, like LinkedIn or, or Facebook or something like that. You know, it's like if you know this person, you might know this person. A kind of a friend of a friend should be a friend idea. You know, Rick and I, I, I know you. And, you know, Rick, maybe you have a friend named Jim. And so statistically speaking, Jim and I might, might get along, right? Because you and I get along and you and he get along. Especially if I and Jim get along mm -hmm. also. Yeah. And so you can go through algorithmically and say, you know, in the literature, if, if migraine, for example, which is the example we give in the paper, uh, is strongly related to a neurotransmitter, serotonin, uh, which I didn't know before we made the website, actually, <laughs> um, that in the medical literature, there's a whole serotonin hypothesis for migraines, uh, I guess because migraines respond to uh, antidepressants, which are usually serotonergic drugs. So anyway, serotonin and migraines are very strongly related, and neuroscientists know a lot about the basic physiology of serotonin, where in the brain it's expressed and things like that. And so... On the neuroscience side, we know that serotonin is very striatum, expressed in, in a brain region called the striatum, which is sort of deep, frontal part of the brain. And uh, there's thousands of papers that talk about serotonin and migraines and serotonin in this brain region, the striatum, respectively. But there's only 19 papers or something like that that talk about that brain region and migraines. And so statistically speaking, maybe we're missing something here, right? Maybe just nobody's really looked at this connection between migraines and that brain region. Maybe there aren't papers published on it because people have looked and there's nothing there, but uh, that's why it's semi-automated. You can go through this list of recommended hypotheses, and yeah, as an expert, I can go through that list and say, oh, some of these are nonsense, <laughs> or 
oh, that's that, that could be interesting. Maybe, maybe we should look into that. So it gives you low-hanging fruit. Basically, yeah. yeah. And so that would be something uh, eventually I, I, I would like to build into the site. Are you continuing to analyze new papers as they enter PubMed? We haven't rerun it for a little while. I think there's something along the order of 10,000 new papers published every month in the neurosciences. But when you're standing in the face of 3 million, it's sort of a drop in the bucket. So we, we were rerunning it every month or two, mm -hmm. um, but the results really don't change very quickly, right? It's pretty stable. So, yes, we, we should actually rerun it again. Mm -hmm. It's been about six months or so. And have so. you guys actually, like... Well, I, I mean, as a... Or perhaps how, you know... The ideas in the literature might change, for instance. Yeah, that's actually something that I did do. Mm -hmm. um, I limited the searches to just brain regions, so how do different brain regions relate to each other across time. So I did a search for all papers published up to like 1905, uh, which wasn't very many, of course. Not nearly, you know, you have an exponential increase in the number of papers being published. Uh, but then again, I, I ran it again for all papers published to like up to 1935, 55, 75, 95, and, you know, 2005, right? Uh, or 2011. And you can actually see how our understanding of how different brain regions relate change over time, and that was kind of neat. Um, if I was going to be a little bit statistically uh, stronger about this, what I should have done in the original paper, and I didn't think about it until after we had published it, was I should have run the semi-automated hypothesis generation algorithm uh, on a limited amount of data. So a test data set up to, like, say, 1990 and then found plausible hypotheses from that data set, and then run it again on the entire thing and, and see, you know, if, if we had found new things and, you know, if that corroborated what we've learned in the last 22 years. That would be neat. You are listening to Spectrum on KALX Berkeley. We're talking with Brad and Jessica Wojtek about BrainScanner, their site to show links that may exist between brain structures, cognitive functions, neurological disorders, and more, as data mined from the academic literature. I mean, this is a side, side project for us. Yeah, it was two weeks and $11.50. <laughs> and what did that go to? Um, coffee. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you factor in coffee, yeah. then a um, bit more. No, it, it went into the Google App Engine server time. Mm. So we actually were able to use Google App Engine to distribute the processing, which is also what made my, my code a little bit quicker mm -hmm. to run through all of this data. I was doing single queries at a time, and because we have 800 terms in the database and we have to do how every term relates to every other term, it's 800 squared divided by two, essentially. Yeah. And then there's the round trip between between his your machine mm -hmm. and the um, PubMed database. So, you know, you're making a request, you're making a request, you're making a request. Anyway, it was maybe three days, three days or four days. And I was able to do it in about two hours by um, putting it into the cloud and using App Engine. So that $11.50 went to paying for the service. Mm. Technically, and it's 800 squared divided by two minus 800, I think. <laughs> Uh, a lot. So, do you want to talk about how that dictionary of keywords was generated? Initially, I had wanted to try and figure out how brain regions relate. Uh, this this grew out of my PhD work, actually, at uh, Berkeley. I worked with uh, Professor Bob Knight, who used to be the head of the Neurosciences Institute, Helen Wells Neuroscience here. And my PhD thesis was looking at how two brain regions, the uh, prefrontal cortex and the basal ganglia, related to working memory. And 
as I was studying for my qualifying exams, I was trying to figure out, okay, what are the brain regions that send inputs to striatum, which is one of the parts of the basal ganglia, and where does the striatum project to? And in order to figure that out, I spent, I don't know, two months off and on, three months off and on over at the biomedical library here, digging through old uh, anatomical papers from the 1970s and basically drawing little hand-drawn charts to try and figure out how these things connected. And it really surprised me. It was frustrating because, you know, here we are in, well, when I was doing this, it was like 2008, right? And all I wanted to know was how do different brain regions connect? And I was like, why can't I just go to a website and say, okay, striatum, what are its inputs and outputs? Like, we have that information, right? Why can't I do that? Um, and so anyway, that was one of the motivating factors for me also. And there's actually a paper published in 2002 called Neuronames, and then this researcher was tr trying to create an ontology of, of brain region names, right? So the terms that we use now in 2012 aren't necessarily the same that people were using back in 1900 when they were first describing the basic anatomy. And so you have some Latin names for brain regions, you have modern names for brain regions, you have names for different groupings of brain regions. So I referred earlier to the basal ganglia, uh, and that is composed of, you know, maybe five different brain regions. And if I talk about three of those brain regions, uh, I'm going to give examples, the putamen and the glo uh, globus pallidus. Uh, globus pallidus is actually contained of two separate ones, and the putamen and globus pallidus, if you combine them together, are known by one name. But if you combine the putamen with the striatum, that's a different name. And so you actually have these weird Venn diagram overlapping naming yeah. schema. There's a significant vocabulary problem, which is the term that we use in the information sciences. Basically, the fact that you have multiple names for the same thing, and you have the same name for some different things. So, you know, this Venn diagram idea. Um, so, yeah, if you're going to use a very simple search algorithm, you have you can't do it. You're not going to get all of the results. So um, I think our system tries to solve that vocabulary problem a little bit. And then there's actually a researcher, um, Russ Poldrack, who used to be a faculty of neuroscience at UCLA, and I think he's in University of Texas now. And he actually tried to create an ontology for a cognitive terms. So in cognitive science and psychology and cognitive neuroscience, you know, we have terms like working memory and attention, and they're trying to create a whole ontology for how these different things really. So like working memory is part of memory, which, you know, and memory also contains uh, long-term memory. And so we use his first attempt as a dictionary as well. And then we went to the NIH website and they've got a uh, listing of all these different kinds of neurological disorders. And we use that. So we, we pulled a bunch of publicly available data basically and use those dictionaries as our starting point. And then we also took suggestions from the people on our website. Almost immediately, we started getting mm. requests for m more and different terms. So I haven't checked that in a while, actually. When you find two keywords that appear in a paper together, you assume that they're actually related. Can you comment on if people might have demonstrated that they're not actually related? Uh, how does that affect your system? Like some, like an instance in which. Uh, it says this brain region is not connected to this other brain region. Right. Um, yes, we have assumed that there's a publication bias, that if there is not a connection, then someone does not publish a paper about that. 
Yeah, negative publications or negative findings go very underreported in the scientific literature. Right. So, so we're taking advantage of that. We're hopefully taking advantage of that. Hopefully the law of large numbers means that our data is mostly correct and it does seem to be that way. The, the example that Brad gave uh, with the Allen Brain Atlas, that there is certain corroborating evidence that seems to suggest that this is a at least plausible connections. There's that's a, obviously that's a lot of mitigating terms that are seemingly plausible. No, that's perfectly scientifically accurate. That was very well done. <laughs> I tend to get a little bit specific when I talk about this kind of stuff. Is there already some sort of bias that might drive certain kinds of papers up? If a paper has a lot of buzzwords, perhaps it suddenly becomes more important. To 100% your yes, yeah. absolutely. There are always hot topics, uh, and that shows up for sure. Only because there's more papers published mm-hmm. on that subject. We we don't currently have a any kind of weighting per paper. Yeah, like <laughs> when you go into the website and you do something like um, there's a brain region called the amygdala, and you know it'll be very strongly associated with fear. And so that's actually one of my concerns is promulgating these biases. So you know there's a lot of literature on this brain region, the amygdala, and how it relates to fear, but it certainly does a lot more than just processing fear. Right? It's this general emotional affective labeling sort of idea that anyway that's that's neuroscience specific stuff you know a brain region called the insula and disgust or love or you know these other kinds of strong emotions and so yeah it definitely reflects certain biases as well and we, we try and quantify that even to an extent a little bit so again using the Allen brain analysis data we show from our data set what are the top five brain regions that express or that are related to dopamine for example and in the real human brain what are the top five brain regions that express dopaminergic related genes. And you can actually see that there's a very clear bias. So uh, one of the regions that expresses dopamine very strongly is very hard to study, neuroscientifically speaking. It's it's deep in deep part of the brain. It's hard to get any... It's very small, so you can't get it from like brain scanning. It expresses a lot of dopamine, but people just don't study it. And we can actually quantify then some of these understudied relationships. Right? Well, like here's a brain region that we know expresses a lot of dopamine, but there's 100 papers only. And Another brain region that's very sexy about dopamine has 10,000 papers, right? So, Our system shows you an example of the current state of scientific literature. So it's not necessarily 100% correct, but it reflects what scientists think as a whole at this point. Yeah, I would agree. And we try and be very careful about that in the paper and in in talking about it like we are right now. You are listening to Spectrum on KALX Berkeley. We're talking with user interface developer Jessica Wojtek and neuroscientist Bradley Wojtek about Brain Scanner. I was really surprised. You know, I taught neuroanatomy for three semesters here at Berkeley. And, you know, so I know the anatomy pretty well. And when I first ran it, I had one of those like, yes, kind of moments like, I can't believe this worked because it really does find all of these clusters really nicely. And that was a very pleasant surprise. <laughs> I guess, technically speaking, it couldn't have been any other way. Like, it just has to, you know, I mean, these topics co-occur a lot, so it should be that way, but it's always nice to see something like that work. Brad, yeah. I wanted to ask about the journals that you sent the paper off to. How did you pick them? art of picking a journal where to send a paper. It's actually really hard. So certain journals get more readership than others. And then there's the open access factor. So I'm I'm a big open science, open data advocate. And so I try and shoot for that. 
I had forgotten there's actually sort of a, a very wide protest of Elsevier, which is one of the publishing companies right now. And the journal that published my paper is an Elsevier journal. But uh, I had signed the petition and I was part of that not shortly thereafter. Uh, that would have impacted my decision had I been thinking about it. And yeah, so it's mainly a balance between readership and expectation. And you sort of get a feel after publishing a few papers of what editors are looking for. And so... Um, I, I am the one that has experience with navigating the academic publishing yes. environment. Yeah, so you know, we sent it out to a lot of journals, and uh, mostly it didn't pass editorial review, which means that there's an editor that decides whether or not conceptually it would be interesting for their journal to publish. It once got sent to review uh, at a journal, and they're like, well, it was sort of torn. There were four reviewers, four peer reviewers, and... Two of them were fairly enthusiastic, and the other two were like, this is cool, but so what, right? Um, and the general consensus was it didn't fit with the theme of the journal. The, the Journal of Neuroscience Methods went really well, uh, and the reviewers are very constructive. And um, actually, there's a figure at the end of the paper where we did some integration with the Allen Brain Alice. Paul Allen, one of the co-founders of Microsoft, who is a quizillionaire, has put half a billion dollars into this institute. Initially, the goal was to map uh, the expression of all of these different uh, genes in the human brain, in the mouse brain. And they made all that data publicly available. And so we used that as a test data set. So we said, okay, where are these different uh, neurotransmitter-related genes actually expressed in the brain? And what does our system think about where in the brain these neurotransmitters are? There's a weak but significant correlation between the two, which suggests that our system reflects actual reality to a certain extent, at least. And that was a suggestion I got from one of the peer reviewers, and that was really good. Uh, it was a lot of extra work, but it, it ended up being a really good addition to the paper. But both of you guys are involved in science education and science outreach, so I was hoping you could comment on that. I'm actually starting a project with a friend of mine, building a neuroscience kids' book. So we're going to teach neuroscience to elementary school kids with an electronic ebook. Featuring Ned the Neuron. Yes, feature, his name is Ned the Neuron. He's a pyramidal cell, and he works in the motor cortex of the brain. And is the neuroscience focus partly driven by Brad, or do you have a sort of personal interest in it as well? I do have a personal interest in it. I, I, you know, obviously it's convenient that my husband is a neuroscientist, but actually the character and the original story idea is my partner's, who's also a neuroscientist. And Who also did her PhD in neuroscience here at Cal. Here at Cal. You know, I, I get this question a fair amount, like, why do I do blogging and outreach and things like that? So there's actually a few answers to that. One, I find blogging uh, helps me... I don't know, do better science. If I have to figure out a, a very simple way of explaining something, then I feel like I understand it better. It's sort of like one of the best ways to learn something is by trying to teach it, right? I had a very strange path to academia. Uh, I actually got kicked out as an undergraduate from university. I had to sort of beg my way back in uh, because my grades were pretty low. You know, a couple people helped me out along the way that were pretty important to me. And I think a lot of grad students have this experience where they, they feel like they don't belong there in in sense that like, oh my God, I'm not smart enough to do this, you know. And when I look at the resumes or CVs of, you know, tenured faculty here at Berkeley, right, it's just paper after paper and award and amazing achievement. And you're just like struggling to even understand how to write a paper. And it seems just like this daunting, intractable problem. And so because of that, I actually have a section in my CV where I actually list every time a paper has been rejected. And I've actually had graduate students tell me that that's been kind of nice to see, that, you know, you see somebody who's doing pretty well, and you see that, you know, in order to get there, you sort of have to slog through a lot of crap. Do you plan to work together some more? I, I think so. You know, we're obviously working together 
to raise a son right now. We actually were talking on the way over here about trying to implement some of the ideas that we've been talking about that people have suggested. I think we could definitely do that. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of overlap. I'm very interested in dynamic data visualization, and that's something that Jess is obviously getting quite quite good at. <laughs> and so I'd like to start doing that for a lot of my research papers as well. Brad and Jess, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you very much for having us. Thank you so much for having us. And now for some science news headlines. Here's Renee Rao and Brad Swift. The Berkeley News Center reports researchers at the University of California, Berkeley, are gathering evidence this fall that the feisty fox squirrels scampering around campus are not just mindlessly foraging for food, but engaging in a long-term saving strategy. To track the nut-stashing activity, the student researchers are using GPS technology to record all of the food burials and, in the process, are creating an elaborate map showing every campus tree, building, and garbage can. Mikel Delgado, a doctoral student in psychology, heads the squirrel research team in the laboratory of UC Berkeley psychologist Lucia Jacobs. The research team is replicating the caching experiment on humans by timing students as they bury Easter eggs on campus and try to find them. We're using humans as a model for squirrel behavior to ask questions that we can't ask squirrels, Delgado said. The group has a Cal Squirrels website to promote their work. UC Berkeley professor of cell and molecular biology and chemistry, Carolyn Bertozzi, has won the 2012 Heinrich Weiland Prize. Professor Bertozzi has founded the field of bioorthogonal chemistry. In her groundbreaking approach, she creatively exploits the benefits of synthetic chemistry to study the vital processes within living beings. Professor Dr. Wolfgang Baumeister, chair of the Board of Trustees of the Heinrich Weiland Prize, says of Professor Bertozzi, her breakthrough method to identify sugar patterns on the cell surface is a milestone for our understanding of the functions of sugars in health and disease and paves the way for novel diagnostic and therapeutic approaches. A regular feature of Spectrum is a calendar of some of the science and technology-related events happening in the Bay Area over the next two weeks. Brad Swift and Renee Rao join me for this. The second annual Bay Area Science Festival is wrapping up this weekend. Highlights include Art in Science, a gallery gala showing the intersection of image and research, tonight at the Berkeley Arts Festival Gallery, Science Superheroes tonight at the Tech Museum in San Jose, and Discovery Days at AT&T Park tomorrow, November 3rd, from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. Last year, more than 21,000 people showed up to this free event. This year, there are more than 150 exhibits. Visit bayareascience.org for more information about any of these great activities and to see their regular calendar of science goings-on. Big Ideas Berkeley is an annual innovation contest that provides funding, support, and encouragement to interdisciplinary teams of UC undergraduate and graduate students who have big ideas. The pre-proposal entry deadline is 5 p.m. November 6, 2012. All pre-proposals must be submitted via the online application on the Big Ideas website. Remember, there are Big Idea advisors to help students craft their pre-proposals. You can drop in at Room 100 Bloom Hall, 
during scheduled hours or email advisors to schedule an appointment at another time. Check the Big Ideas website for advisor times or to make an appointment. There will also be an editing blitz November 5th from 5 to 8 p.m. in Room 100 at Bloom Hall. Advisors and past winners will be available to provide applicants with valuable last-minute insights and advice on your pre-proposal. This is a great opportunity to hone your proposal and get support from those who know what it takes to build a successful big idea. The Big Ideas website is bigideas.berkeley.edu. On November 8th, the Center for Ethnographic Research will hold a colloquium to understand cancer treatment trajectories using an array of ethnographic data. The speaker, Daniel Dohan, an associate professor in the Philip R. Lee Institute for Health Policy Study, will discuss his research about inequality and culture with a focus on cancer. He will focus on his most recent study, which examines how patients with advanced diseases find out about and decide whether to participate in clinical trials of new cancer drugs. The event, which is free and open to the public, will be held from 4 to 5.30 p.m. at 2538 Channing Way. The music you heard during today's show was by Lestana David from his album Folk and Acoustic. It is released under a Creative Commons license, version 3.0. Spectrum was recorded and edited by me, Rick Karneski, and by Brad Swift. Thank you for listening to Spectrum. If you have comments about the show, please send them to us via email. Our email address is spectrum.kalx at yahoo.com. Join us in two weeks at this same time.